Well, good morning and welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you for coming. For your first time, we've been working through a series we're calling Sojourn Essentials, where we're talking about why we exist as a church and what we prioritize. And right now, we're in our third priority, which is community. We say that we prioritize the Bible, and it's to inform and instruct all that we do. It's God's Word. It's authoritative word over us as believers. We talk about the, the gospel, that if we care about the Bible, we have to care about the gospel. It's the central message of the scripture, that it is forms us as believers and fuels us as believers. And one of our third priority, that is community. And I really think that we, we don't even grasp a, a, a very small piece of the grace that God has given us in community, that He has designed us to have a body of believers around us to encourage us and support us. Just as we're we're singing together, we're praying together, we're hearing stories about what God is doing through us and and our people. Like That is such a grace that God has given us. And we need to be very, very thankful for that and, and start to live out and own the priority of community. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. I'm going to read a passage in Hebrews chapter 10. It will be our text today. If you don't have a Bible, the the words will be up on the screen for you. But here is the word of the Lord in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith and with our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience in our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I think that there's a huge disconnect often in our lives between what we would say about community and the way we actually live. Now, I think that that many of us would agree with a lot of the things that we would talk about community. If we were to tell you, here's our vision for community, that we're going to live life with one another, that we're going to be authentic, that we're going to be be real with one another, we're going to get into each other's lives, most of you would say yes and amen. But I think there's a disconnect often because we we might catch the vision of of what it is and agree with it and separate that from how we're actually living. That is to say that that I think that our lives are showing that we may not be as committed to community and what we would say we agree with as we really should be. I think that in Christianity, especially in, in our culture, in American culture, we've rebounded well from a very kind of individualistic Christianity where it's all about your personal confession of faith and your personal relationship with Jesus Christ and all these personal things that you're to do. Those things were were brought forward and they were good. But we need to also have a a biblical balance of things. So we've we've kind of swung. We've we've gone and we've stressed and and seen the importance of community. But what I think has happened is as we've rebounded from a time of of kind of this individualistic Christianity, this individual Christian life, is that we've, we've rebounded and we've seen the, the need for community, but we haven't committed to it. We, we agree with it, but we haven't committed our lives to it. I mean, I, I think that this is obvious. I don't have the numbers because I don't know if they'd help anyway. But, but kind of the average people that would normally attend church, their, their percentages of, of actually attending per month is going down. And so that tells us something. Like There's something off here. There's a priority that's, that's out of whack. Well, we might grasp the idea of community, but we're not living it out. And here we have the author of Hebrews, by the Spirit of God, calling us to be committed family. To be family with one another. To have a family relationship with one another. And this is what biblical community is. But as we look through this passage, before we get to this relationship that we have with one another... Hebrews gives us good news about relationship with God. If you look in verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. This holy places, that is approaching the very presence of God, entering into the kind of the, the heavenly sanctuary, as it were, where God dwells. We're approaching God Himself. And this is no small thing because God is holy. We have no idea how holy He is. We 
can only, once again, just get a bit of it. But God is so holy that this to come into His presence is no small matter. We have a holy God. And we see this in, in the Old Testament. Moses comes to this burning bush. It's God speaking out of a bush. And what does He tell Moses? Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. You don't approach lightly. Joshua, this awesome little story, right? As he gets to go into the promised land, he meets the commander of the Lord's army, who's actually going to do all the work in defeating the enemies. And he says, well, whose side are you on? And he says, no. <laughs> I'm not on, you are on my side or not on my side. That's what's going on here, not the other way around. And he says, take off your sandals. The place that you're standing is holy ground. He's entering the very presence of God, and he's commanded to take off his sandals. Isaiah goes into the presence of God, and he, he commits a, just a curse upon himself. He says, woe is me. He, he wants to cover himself up. He wants to hide. He wants to go anywhere but where he is, because he knows he's a man of unclean lips. And he lives among a people of unclean lips. High priests, when they'd come into the Holy of Holies, the holy place where God's presence was, presence was dwelling with the people, in the midst of the people, they would come. But remember, we talked about this last week. They would only come with blood. You only approach the presence of God with blood. It's carefully done. And yet believers are encouraged in verse 19 to approach with confidence, with boldness. Why? How does that happen? How do we get kind of this... Uh, Approach very carefully in the, New in the Old Testament to the New Testament time where he says, No, you need to come with boldness. You need to come with confidence. And the reason why is that believers do not, do not come to the presence of God based upon their own works. They don't come into the presence of God based on their lives or something that they have done. How do they come? They enter boldly because they enter by the blood of Jesus. That's the only way that they come. They're coming with blood as well. But it's not their own. It's the blood of Jesus. It's not the blood of bulls and goats. They come with the very blood of Jesus. The only way God can be approached rightly as a holy God from sinful people is with blood. And here he says we can enter boldly because we have the blood of Jesus. That blood was necessary because of our sin. Something had to die because of sin. And Jesus is that sacrifice. Now... God made that clear to the Jewish people. They knew that you had to have blood to enter into the presence of God. They knew that there need to be sacrifices for sin. They had this huge sacrificial system that most of you probably skip over in your Bibles, but it's there. Leviticus, you know, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all those. There's this sacrificial system that God has set up to remind the people that there, there has to be death for sin. That blood must be shed because of your sin. It's that ugly. It's that bad that this has to happen. But that system was limited. If you look in verse 4 of chapter 10, it says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now hopefully they caught that, and hopefully we would catch that, that surely that bulls and goats can't really take the place of a human life and their sins. But it was set up because it was pointing to something greater. It was pointing to Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb without blemish, the one who would take away the sin of the world. Jesus came to be that, to be the better blood, to be the better bull, to be the better sacrifice that those could not be for sinners and in the place of sinners. He came to be this perfect blood sacrifice for us. It says in verse 10 that this sacrifice... It's through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. It says in verse 12, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. It says in verse 14, That for by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We no longer need a sacrificial system. It has been done away with because the ultimate and atoning sacrifice has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Who gave himself up to be the perfect sacrifice. The single sacrifice. The only sacrifice that could do for all time. For us. So that we could enter in. And we could enter in not scared or timid. But boldly and with confidence. And the root of our confidence isn't in something that we have done. It's not in our faith. It's not in something that we have lived out. It is only in the blood of Jesus. So we can approach boldly. Jesus has, has opened up a way for us to have access to the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus has come to provide a way for us to have access to God Himself and into His presence. A new and living way, it says in verse 20. 
says, by the new and living way that He opened up to us through the curtain, that is through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Now this brings up this, this kind of temple imagery. The temple was a display of God's presence in the midst of His people. It was God's dwelling among them. But if you remember the Old Testament, it was kind of in a hidden and inaccessible way. So He was in the tabernacle, or He was in the temple, where there were curtains dividing off. So it was kind of, He, he was hidden. Inaccessible. Only one person could go in one time a year. All those things were set up for their good. But now, through the blood of Jesus, there's this free and open access to the very presence of God made available to us. Extended out to us that we might enter in. Jesus is now this great high priest who needs no sacrifice for his own sin because he was without sin. And made the perfect sacrifice for us. And He is the one who remains the great high priest forevermore, it says. In fact, Hebrews is very clear that Jesus came to be the greater high priest. That He is the final and great high priest. That He has made the final and great sacrifice that is needed. But think about what's being said here. Or maybe I should say, like, think about what's being said here, sinners. Because we should not have access to the presence of God. We should not be able to approach God. Our approach to God should mean our death. That's how it should end. And yet we have something else going on here that our holy God is actually inviting us in, has made a way for us to draw near to Him. It cost. It cost a mediator. A great high priest, his name was Jesus. Jesus came to be that mediator who invites us in by His own death sacrifices Himself that we might enter in boldly. So we don't have to be cleaned up and perfect. We don't have to have lived good lives. Not that we have or will. We just have to trust in the blood of Jesus. That we can have access and that we can go in. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. Jesus earned it for us. He achieved it on our behalf. Now maybe, maybe you feel unworthy. And you struggle with kind of melancholy. Just always feeling crushed beneath the weight of your sin. The sin of your past and the sins you're dealing with now. Maybe you feel worn down by that. Crushed before a holy God. And the idea of, of a holy God crushes you because you know how great your sin is. You need to hear the call here. You need to come with confidence, he says. Boldly before His throne. Your great high priest, He knew your condition. He knows your condition. And He invites you in. He shed His blood that you might enter in. Now maybe you don't struggle in that way at all, but you struggle more with pride. You feel entitled. Don't I deserve to go in? Don't I have a right to get into the presence of God? After all, He's the one who made me. What's, what's the deal here? And you need to hear the same call. This is a call to confidence, but it's confidence in something. It's confidence in entering, but it's not confidence in yourself or in your flesh and what you've done. You need a priest. You need someone to mediate between God and yourself because God is holy and you are sinful. And so you need to see that you need a priest but that He has once again shed His blood that you might come in. Amen. Made a way for even prideful people who don't think that they need a God or a mediator or a sacrifice or atonement to come into the presence of God. He's made a way for that to happen. And so the author is calling for believers to have this confidence as they enter the holy places because of the great high priest. Because of His work, the blood of Jesus has made a way for us to step in boldly. Amen. But notice what it says in verse 19. This is a therefore. And notice what we're getting ready to go into. We saw it in verse 21. There's a sense. So the, in other words, the author is building an argument here. He, he's, he's working off of something. He's moving us in a direction. We're getting ready to, to read through three kind of let us commands that you see in the rest of the verses. 22 through, through 25. There's let us, let us, let us. But before He gets there, He needs to remind us that we can enter into the presence of God boldly. He needs to remind us, in other words, before we get kind of the horizontal relationships, that here's how your vertical relationship with God works now. Because of the great high priest. Because of His blood sacrifice. Be reconciled to God first before we're going to talk about how we handle one another. So we confidently enter into the holy places... And since we have this great high priest, and since he has made the sacrifice, then we get to these next commands that say, let us do something. But not before. We must see this once again as kind of a, a play off of last week. We have fellowship with God, and that fellowship is with one another. We're reconciled to God based on the work of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. 
And because of that, and building off of that, we have these let us commands. That is to say that we as believers are to live in response once again to the gospel. We are to live in response to what Jesus has done, to who He is and what He's done. That is our lives. And so when we get to these, we, we remember that. I remember this quote. It's a great quote. A couple of you have read this book by Milton Vincent. He says, Hence, the more I comprehend the full scope of the gospel, the more I value the church for which Christ died. And the more I value the role that I play in the lives of my fellow Christians. And the more that I appreciate the role that they must be allowed to play in mine. Once we see the, the full scope of the gospel and we grow in, in depth in the gospel, we're going to grow in our love for the church and our love for one another. But we, we don't want to get those out of line. Grow in our love and depth of the gospel and then let that flow out, your response flow out into community. So readers here in, in Hebrews are addressed as brothers. In 21, they're, they're kind of talking about it's, it's the household of God. This Audience is the community of God. This is the people of God that he's talking to. This is God's people. In other words, the church is being addressed here. And they're called to respond to the blessings that the great high priest has given to them, granted to them, in their family, in one another's lives. And so what are they called to? What is their response? In verse 22, he begins, Let us then, let us draw near with a heart full, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So access has been given. It's been granted to us. So take hold of it. Draw near to the heavenly sanctuary. A, a few years ago, Catherine and I were, were offered basically like a, a paid trip to, to Sandestin, Florida. So it was a stay at Hilton Sandestin. Great beach in Florida. I've never been to a beach. And so, what should our response be to that? Like, that's a no-brainer. If someone offers you, you get a free stay at Hilton Sandestin. You'll stay there for three days and three nights. And we'll pay for your food there as well. What, what should your response be? It should be what our response was. Like, yes, absolutely we'll do that. We will, we will meet you there and let you pay for our stuff. We have no problem with that whatsoever. Right? When we saw that we had access, we, we, we're going to take hold of that. We're going to grab hold of it and we're going to live that out. But when we did that, we, we had to be sure of a few things. right? We had to be sure that they weren't like kidding and that we, when we got there, we'd actually have a room. We had to trust them. Trust them that when we show up, they're not going to turn us away. And there's gates all over that place. So it, it, it's a trust thing there. And we, we had to go into it knowing, like, all right, they really got a room for us. But we also had to, to trust and know that it would be worth our time. Like, we want to be in this place. We want to go there. And this is the manner that he starts to talk about how we approach God. Right? There's this idea that you, you know that you're going to have access when you go in. That you know that it's going to be granted to you. It's not going to fail you. And you know that when you go in, it's worth it. It's worth your time. So this is how he says it. You're, you're to draw near in a certain manner with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Draw near it with a certainty in the work of Jesus and what He's done on your behalf. That He actually has secured a way that you can get in. That you're not going to be blocked off when you try to enter in. Draw near because the high priest is the high priest who's over the whole house of God. He's still reigning and ruling. That He is over that house still. And He's secured a way for us to be in. He's still mediating. And so you can have trust in Him. He's still there. So when you go, it's going to be worth it. When you go, you're going to have access. He says, draw near with hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience. With bodies washed with pure water. Now I think he's drawing up a little bit from chapter 9. In chapter 9, starting in verse 18, he says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all of the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. And indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And Jesus comes, and he takes a cup after the supper, and he says, This is my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of sin. This is the blood of the new covenant for you. So he is cleansing us, sacrificing himself. That we might be cleansed. That we might be washed. We sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this is my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can do that. This is what he's getting at. And so what the death of Jesus does, what his blood does is it 
us from sin. Removing the, the power of sin in our lives. It's now broken by the death of Jesus. Removing the penalty that we deserve for our sin. That we had on us squarely because we are sinful before a holy God. And it removes from us also guilt. The guilt of sin. God takes that guilt and He cleanses us. He gives us clean consciences. Clean hearts. This is in fulfillment of Ezekiel 36 where He says, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you're going to be clean. It's a promise of the new covenant. Fulfilled in Jesus. He says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. Now I'm going to remove the heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. A heart that has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. A heart that comes in without overwhelming guilt and the penalty and impounding upon it. It comes in clean, washed, and free. Jesus inaugurates this with His blood, with His sacrificial death. And then He invites us to draw near. He invites us in. He makes a way and invites us in with this certainty, with cleansed hearts and consciences. And the question I think that we ought to ask ourselves from this, if Jesus has done all this great work, and if Jesus is so kind to invite us in confidently and boldly, then are we? Are we drawing near? Are we entering into the heavenly sanctuary? Are we coming into the presence of God? Are we drawing near to Him? There's many times you see in Jesus' earthly ministry when, when people would draw near to Him. When people would be granted access to Him. You, you think of blind men yelling out on the side of the road and, and being kind of pushed away and Jesus kindly, compassionately granting them access to Him. And what do they do when they have access? And they ask for big things. Heal me of my blindness. Do something here. If you think about the children that the disciples were pushing aside, saying, we don't have time for this. And what does Jesus say? He, he, Let them come to me. Grant them access. And what do they do? We, we see that they, they're in the arms of Jesus, and then He's blessing them. They're enjoying His presence. They're granted access, and they jump up into Him. And they're enjoying His presence. This happens many times in the Gospels. They praise Him. They ask big things. They enjoy Him. They granted access, and this is their response to that. What are we doing with the access we've been granted? Are we drawing near like a child? Enjoying the very presence of God that's been made available to us by His grace? Are we praising Him that we even have a way as sinners to be in His presence? Are we praising Him for the sacrifice that He made? Are we praising Him for extending that out to us? Are we praising Him for continuing to be the great high priest, the perfect priest, the only one that could do what He has done? Are we praising Him for those things? Are we enjoying Him? Are we asking Him for big things? Saying, heal here. Work here. We have access to, to this God. Let's ask Him a big things. Draw near to Him. You see, the right response to all that Jesus has done is to draw near so draw near to Him. But Hebrews continues and, and tells us of another response in verse 23. So we had, let us draw near. And here's the second, let us, let us hold fast the confession of our faith. The confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promises is faithful. Hold fast. Persevere to the confession of your hope that you have. See, hope is this, it's this present reality that we have. We're certain of it, but we know that it's, it's future promise as well. And we're certain of that as well. It's this certainty of what's to come. That's what hope is. And the author is not saying, put your hope in and hold fast to your own personal confession of faith. No, that's not what's going on here. Hope is not in your confession of faith. Hope is a person and His name is Jesus. Like That's where our hope is found. And we're holding fast, not based on our confession, but based upon the work of Jesus and who He is and what He's done. That's what we're holding on to. So we hold fast without wavering because Jesus, the great high priest, is faithful. Not because our confession is faithful. Not because we think that we'll be faithful. But we know He is the one who's faithful. He is our hope. And our hope is totally in Him. So we hold fast. We persevere. World War I was considered one of the most brutal wars. When you read about the stuff that, that went on, it's incredible to think about. And, and many just could not cope with this and deserted Left, we're done, or would take leave. I read about a man this week that he was on leave and he just could not face the reality of going back, so he went and hid. And there's numerous stories of 
of desertion because they were unable to cope with the horror that was all around them. And here you have this, this war that, that seems to drag on. And the horror continues. And the, the outcome and, and victory is, is in doubt on both sides. There's not necessarily a clear way to victory. And so you can see and you can understand maybe a little bit why, why someone would desert. I mean, I think our hearts can kind of feel that, right? It, it makes some sense that there's all this tragedy around you and you don't even know what you're there for. You don't even know if it's going to end in victory. And so, yeah, we, we feel that sense of, of why they would desert. Think of the original readers of Hebrews here. These, these are people that have a situation like that. That they are being persecuted all around them. They're facing some difficult things. We read about some in, in Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, verse 36, it says, Some were suffering mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute and afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. This is the reality that some of these readers were facing. And so hopefully we can kind of recognize as they, they call for perseverance goes out that this is what they're dealing with. So the call to hold fast is not some cute catchphrase. It's not some nice slogan that he wants these people to, to have. This is their life. He, he's trying to encourage them. Saying that he who promises faithful would have been a huge reminder for them. That in the midst of death and horror all around, that they can stay put because He who promised is faithful. See, the call to hold fast in the midst of persecution is, is ongoing. But here's what they have that no one in World War I had. Certainty of victory. He is calling them to persevere, to hold fast, because they know the outcome. Because you know that He who promised is faithful. He's always been faithful. He'll always be faithful. You know this is going to happen in the end. That is your hope. But let's not miss the communal aspect of this. Let us do this. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. These are not solitary affairs. These are not things that you do on your own. And so one pastor said that the church has been called together to overcome. You will need others to persevere. I need others to persevere. And it may not seem real hard for us now. We may not be facing being sawn in two, but there are some brothers and sisters that are. But no matter our setting, the, the Scripture is clear. We need one another. That we need to do this together. That we have been called together to overcome. Here's what happened. That those who don't desert on the front line, who stayed, I bet many of them would say that they stayed because of the people next to them. Or the people behind them that they're defending. We're going to need those people next to us and behind us if we're going to persevere in this. So these exhortations that he's giving, these are meant for members of the community, the household of God, the people of God, those who are God's. And it leads into one final call. Verse 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Consider how to love one another and stir one another up to love and good works. There's this understood thing that's going on in the passage here. There's this understood love and care that the members of this community, the members of this household of God, have for one another. It's implied that there's this deep care and concern for one another in the community, in the people of God. That's there. And so they're letting us do this. Consider, he says. Consider it. This is not off the cuff. This is not the first thought that comes to your mind how to stir one another up. How many people have been damaged by the first thought, first opinion that came to someone's mind as they're trying to encourage? Many. You can probably all attest to this. It says, consider this. Life is complex. The people are complex. Situations are complex. Things are easy to understand and comprehend. Consider Consider how to stir one another up. Consider how to encourage to love and good works. Don't just offer your best opinion every time you have something pop, pop in your head. That is not what the Scripture would call us to. Consider how to do this. Paul, I think, understands this. And he even 
tells us to take different approaches for different things. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, but be patient with them all. So in other words, there's some different things going on there. There's different problems that are happening. There's different approaches to encourage them, to exhort them, to, to stir them up. But being patient with them all. I think about my, my birthday. I love my birthday because my wife considers me. And she does this all the time, but she specifically picks out the things that I really, really like to do on my birthday. So she considers it. She thinks about what would honor him, what would make him happy on this day. So she gets up early or stays up late and makes my favorite breakfast. So she makes a cake that we only have once a year because I like it a lot, and she makes it for that day. She thinks about things like, what should we do on this day? Not because she necessarily wants them. They're her favorite things. But she knows that that's what he would want to do. She considers me. She tailors it to me. And it really honors me. This is how we're to be with one another. She does that because she cares about me. And this is how we're to care and love for one another. We're family. Consider how to, how to stir one another up. Consider these things. You see, what we need to do is that we need to take the truth of God and apply it to the people of God. And everyone is to do this. And, and that takes thought. Probably more thought than what you think. It takes thought to do that well. So let me ask you this. When's the last time when someone brought you a problem and a concern that you said, you know what? Let me think and pray about that and I'll get back with you. When's the last time you've done that? And then just offer up your greatest opinion in the moment. When's the last time someone did that for you? And what we'd actually want to happen is then they'd actually go and give that thought and prayer. And then come back and share. See, what we should be able to offer one another to really love and stir one another up is some prayer-soaked encouragement. Thinking, let's think about... This person's situation. And let's think about the Word of God. How do these go together? And how can I best encourage in this situation for this person? It's not off the cuff. We need to consider how to do this because it's our family. We want to give them good, wise encouragement. Consider how to do this. There ought to be this deep love and concern. And that ought to drive how we do this. How we encourage. How we stir one another up. When our kids are sick, and I think you probably do this too, you quarantine them, right? Don't get the other kids sick. You push them into a room, shut the door. Try not to get anybody else sick. But what would happen if that child that was sick, quarantined off in a room, cried out? I'll tell you what my wife would do. She would not hesitate to run into the room. To go into the midst of sickness to take care of a sick child. To enter into that sickness. Parents wouldn't hesitate. Why? Because we're family. We're family. There should be this love and concern that makes us want to enter into these things. That urges us to go into these problems so that we can encourage, so that we can help the best way that we can. Notice that when he says, let us, the author is including himself in this. This is something that is not just for the professionals. This is something for the body of Jesus. This is something for every believer. Let us do this. So we're not farming this out to the pastors and saying they're in charge of encouraging one another. They're in charge of encouragement. They're in charge of stirring these people up to love and good works. No, let us do this. The author is included, but he says to the entire audience, let us do this. This is not just a call for pastors or professionals. This is a call for every single believer. This is the activity of the family of God. And here's the reality, is that you know this in your life, that professionals can come and go, but family will, will remain. They're the ones that stay. They're the ones that don't just try to handle the problem and are gone. They're the ones that stay and remain throughout the midst of the problem. And that's what we're to be for one another. We're to be working in one another's lives, concerned enough to stir one another to love and good works as members of the community of God, which is only seen in the local church. As members of that, we are to stir and to be stirred. We're not to one another ourselves. You see these one another commands all through the Scripture. You can't one another yourself. By nature, it involves another person. Another one of those weird Greek words that actually means just another. 
There's no flying solo in Christianity. It doesn't exist in the New Testament. You will not find it. There is always, always membership. Always commitment. Always family. Always together. We could go through the list of just analogies that's used of the body of Christ. The building. We could go on and on. It's never solo. It's always together. So one commentator said it would have been inconceivable in the first century to call yourself a Christian but not to join a church. There's no hint, no hint that there is someone who is saved and not a part of a church. I mean, if if you're going to read the Bible that way, then go ahead and rip out all those books that are to a church. Don't do that, actually. There are many. But they would be hard to apply if you think that you're going to do this on your own. One commentator said that this is a grotesque anomaly. An unchurched Christian. One says this is flat. Biblically, Christians are not church avoiders. And this one's going to hurt for all of us. Attenders, hoppers, or shoppers. Biblically, Christians are church members. Amen. In our age where, where personal freedom is prized, where we do not want to be held down or committed to anything, we need to sink down roots. We need the call to biblical community. We need the call to membership in this community. So one of the applications of this is, is if you're not a member of Sojourn, we're not the only church around. Now, we're not saying that this is the place you have to be a member or you should be. But be a member somewhere. But if you're not a member anywhere and you're kind of looking around and you've been following with us, especially through this essential series, and you're saying, yeah, I'm on board with that. I want to be at a church that prioritizes those things. Then jump in and be committed. Sink down roots. It's a way of saying, I'm cutting off all other options. I need to be committed here. You say the same thing when we get married. You're saying, I'm cutting off all other options. I'm committed to this one. Till death do us part. Considering how to love one another, stir one another to love and good works, is very, very practical. Indeed, the author continues to show how practical it is in verse 25, that we're not neglecting to meet together. That we're not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but we're encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The church, the local church, is always, always an assembly. That is to say that the church always gathers. It's more than an assembly. We could say much, much more, but we can never say less. There's no disassembled church. That doesn't exist. There's always an assembly. They always gather. It must gather by its very nature. And some had apparently failed to continue to attend these corporate gatherings. Why? We don't know. Maybe because they were being persecuted. And attending such a gathering would, would bring on kind of the limelight onto them to maybe put them up as a, another one that might be persecuted. Or maybe that it was hurting them financially. That because they were associated with Christians, people didn't want to do business with them. All those things are kind of hinted at in the New Testament. Those could have been likely some of the reasons. We see in verse 26 through 28, as he goes on, we're not going to read it, but he goes on to speak about people that turn away from the faith. Apostasy. And so I think that what he's kind of driving at is that he's implying that those who neglect to meet together are in great danger of the apostasy that he talks about in the next verses. The neglect, those who neglect to meet together are in danger of that. And the reality is that we've all seen it many times. Right? Someone walks away from community, consistent commitment to a place, and they walk into more sin. I had a good friend in Kentucky really fun guy, liked to hang around him, really personable, jumped into community with us, was in our group, was going on Sunday with us, but then had to switch jobs. And at first, he still came as often as he could, and there was this desire you could see in him, like, yes, man, I'm sorry, I want to be there. Job doesn't allow it this time. There was communication back and forth, so we're still trying to reach out to him, we're still trying to care for him. 
And we were getting responses. We were able to pray for him and with him. And he was able to share burdens in life with one another even when he had to be gone. But then it slipped, as it often does, right? It became harder and harder because of his job situation to, to make it to the times he could make it. It cost him. It cost him sleep. It cost him time. All those kind of things started to be in play. And he started to come less and less often. And what happened with the communication, do you think? Started to be less and less responsive. And as this goes on, he starts to get in more and more sin. And then doesn't respond at all. Didn't want to walk with us. Didn't want to talk to us. Now this is not always how it goes when you neglect to meet together. But the language is very, very strong here. Like the author is trying to prove a point. He's warning about walking away as they could do in verse 26 and following. And I'm reminded, as one pastor said, that we're created for community and that isolation is the devil's playground. That it does no good for anybody. It's not good that man be alone. You are a sinner, and if you are left to your sinful self, it goes in a sinful direction. Thankfully, sometimes even in situations where you're kind of on your own, God is so gracious. I'm not saying that. But let's look at what the Scripture is calling us to, and let's try to live in line with that. Because you can't mutually love one another at a distance. And you can't mutually encourage one another and stir one another up at a distance. Then they kind of go on to say this in verse 25. Don't neglect to meet together as the habit of sons, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we're reminded that the day is drawing near even more so than when he wrote this book. We're closer to that day than we were before. The day is even nearer, so the, the, the exhortation ought to be stronger for us to not neglect to meet together. This day is coming. When we gather, though, we're to encourage one another. That is to say that you aren't to come here and just receive. This is a corporate gathering, and you are not to just consume. That you are here to stir one another up. That you are here to encourage one another, to love one another, to be concerned about one another's lives. That all ought to happen here. This is what we are called to. We're not consumers. We're servants. We're family. We're givers to one another. This is our identity. The day of judgment. The day is drawing near. This is a day of judgment. A day of salvation. Salvation for the people of God. Judgment for those who have turned away from God. And as it approaches, more and more encouragement is needed. Not less. All the more as you see the day drawing near. We need it all the more. Each and every day we need one another even more than we did the day before because the day is even nearer. So don't neglect to be at the place where this mutual encouragement takes place. Don't neglect the corporate gatherings of the local church. Be there. My friend in Kentucky did not rightly prioritize community. Other things started taking the place of biblical community in his life. And he walked further and further into sin. He neglected to meet, and because of that, he has now strayed. And we pray that God would bring him back. We don't know where that process is. He cut off communication, changed his phone number, all those kind of things happen. He neglected to meet, he neglected to mutually love, he neglected to receive love, he neglected to encourage and be encouraged. He prioritized a job or money or freedom or whatever that gave him. And don't we do the same thing so often? When we would be reminded of Jesus' words, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses soul? And one of the means that God has given us to not lose our soul is to not neglect to meet together. To gather together. You see, what I think happens is that we undervalue community and overvalue the things of the world. I think that might be even an understatement. We undervalue community and overvalue the things of this world. And I think that one of the reasons that we do this is that we completely disregard sin and judgment. That we don't take those things seriously. We're to continue to do this all the more as we see the day drawing near. If we took sin seriously, we wouldn't undervalue community. If we took judgment and the impending coming of Christ, we wouldn't take gathering together lightly. If sin and judgment are taken seriously, and if the day is drawing near, then we will prioritize community. We will prioritize gathering in our lives. This is the place where we are mutually stirred up. This is the place where we are mutually encouraged. This is the place where we are mutually loved. Now here's the thing that the author really, really gets at, is that that, prior, 
That gathering ought to be a priority. It's not just another activity in the scripture. And we got baseball, and we got school, and we got work, and then we got church. It's not just another activity. It's not just another thing to put on your schedule. It's the very identity of the people of God. We gather. It's what we do. It's who we are. And we live in a time when, when people neglect corporate worship for almost anything. Butterfly camp. I don't know if such a thing exists. But if it did, I guarantee you someone would be missing church for butterfly camp. In consecutive weeks. Butterfly camp. I mean, fill in the blank of what you will skip for. And the problem isn't primarily what we'll miss for. The problem is primarily is that we really don't prioritize gathering together. That we prioritize other things more than that gathering. Whether it be butterfly camp or whatever it is in your life. That it's just like another activity. That the corporate worship is just like butterfly camp, only we kind of do it together. That it's just a different crowd that we're gathering with. That it's no big deal to miss. Because after all, like nothing special is going on this week. It's not a major holiday. It's not Easter or Christmas. And so, no big deal if we skip this week. Just like another camp. I think that we totally miss the ordinary and the normal means that God has given us to persevere to the end. You know, we think of it as so light and easy and no big deal. When the very ordinary and normal gatherings of Christ's church over the long trajectory is what keeps us. Tolkien said it this way, I found that in the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk is what keeps the darkness at bay. You can picture hobbits here doing ordinary little hobbit things. Keeping the, the darkness of Mordor at bay. Don't we undervalue that? Ordinary? We, we, don't, have anything, we don't have a special plan. I don't, we don't have, I don't ever have a special plan. Our special is we open up the Word of God. And that we sing to one another. And we pray together. And that is ordinary and normal and vital to your Christian life. Those are the gatherings that are needed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who... Great book. Life Together. You should all read it. It should be required for membership. But we know that not everyone will do that, so we won't require it. Too easy here. Died alone, longing for fellowship... And together with God's people says this, the very physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. The, just the physical presence of other believers is an incomparable joy and strength. Have you felt that this morning? As a pastor, one of the most encouraging things that you guys do for me is your presence. It encourages me. It stirs me up to love and good works. It makes me want to preach my guts out so that we can love God better. But you can't do that if you're not here. You can't bring joy and strength to other believers if you neglect to meet together. This means practically rearranging your schedule so that this is prioritized. I would love to go to every single home OSU football game and could probably get it done for free. But we won't. Because I need to be here on Sunday rested, ready to hear or give the word of the Lord. Amen. We might take a few late nights. Jim talked about one that's coming up. But the steady practice is that we're going to be rested, my family, when we come. It means that we leave family's house early when our kids are crying because all the other kids are staying and we're taking them because we're coming back to here. I want to be here. I want to be with these people. I'm willing to take the heat that I'll get from my kids just to be here and to show them that this is a priority. It means rearranging your schedule that way. It means not letting the other things dictate what you're going to do on Sunday. Oh, we've got this. It's late on Saturday, so I guess we can't do Sunday. Or, oh, we got this thing coming up on Sunday, so I guess we'll miss this time. We don't let that dictate as believers because we're saying this is our identity. We gather together. That's the priority. We'll let other things flow out of that. Not the other way around. We do this so that we won't neglect to meet together. It's, it's 
family, dropping everything for the good of one another. Seeing other needs, needs for encouragement, needs for love, needs being stirred up and saying, I'll drop everything just to be there. That's the picture of the Scripture. No one should do Christianity alone. This is not a solo journey. So we must prioritize community. This is our family. The reality is that we have all failed. You feeling the weight of conviction? We have failed this. We have not done this well. But praise be to God that He is forming the perfect family. That He is still working in us for this. Where He is this perfect Father who loves us and is concerned for us. That He is this perfect Son who draws near to us when we won't draw near to Him. That He is this perfect Spirit who holds us fast when we want to run and hide. This is the perfect family. This is the perfect start to it. And He is using all of those things to bring us to Himself, to make us the perfect family. God exemplifies family in Father who loves, in Spirit who draws near, in the, in the Son who draws near, in the Spirit who holds us fast. This is what God has made. He has succeeded where we have failed to be family. And He's the one who holds us together. He is the head. So may we encourage one another with these truths all the more as we see the day drawing near. Would you pray with me? Father, we're in need of your truth. We're in need of your love and concern for us. We're tempted to be wayward. We're tempted to our, our own sinful inclinations. Sin isolates us even further. It pushes us away from community. And I pray that you would preserve us. That in the times when we feel like we need community the least, that we would be there the most. Father, we, we, we pray that you would help us prioritize the, the right things in our lives for our good and for your glory. And God, may you receive much glory in the church of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we uh, want to open it up for questions. This is questions that you might have from this entire series. Sojourn Essentials, where we're talking about what we care about. We're talking about...